Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, Quintale Vare Legionnaires Rede. I'm Nick Houghton of 40%German.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox. And this week we're joined by a guest co-host. Welcome to the show, journalist and writer Courtney Tens. How are you both today? I'm good, thanks. Nice to be here. Doing well, doing well, thank you. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So we've got actually some business to attend to before we get into the show proper. Because Simon, you you posted quite a controversial uh, poll on your Twitter page earlier this week. Do you want to do you want to talk about the results, or is it still too painful for you? I, I think I'm I'm recovered just about now. But yeah, you're right. There was a poll up uh, last week. We talked about the the origin of the Curryverse and how important it is to me uh, and, my, and my experience of German culture. And how not important it is to me. Exactly. And we've spoken at great length about how amazing kebab culture is here in Germany and how much we love a good döner. So I decided to see what our followers thought. I wasn't very optimistic going into it. And after 12 hours, I was pretty happy that it, I wasn't being completely destroyed as part of Team Kairiverse mit Pommes. But in the end, I did have to accept it was a pretty one-sided defeat. I think 70%... Uh, of 120 votes pretty comprehensive for donor but i think the reason it won is vitamins and minerals people <laughs> seem to be holding on to this thing that salad is somehow important and that vegetables are good for you so that seemed to be the, the death nail in the curryverse i think if we just add some gamuza we're set we're winning it next year what so like put it with like a side salad a nice bunter salad or something like that i, I think it? anything that's like green on the plate is gonna help uh, so yeah, just a- it's only going to make the curry worst worst the worst worse. <laughs> <laughs> like surely, Courtney, what do you think? Are you uh, are you a fan of either of these options, or are you like in the background going nah? Dude, I have been a vegan for twenty years. Like <laughs> I've never had a curry worst or a donut, There must be a vegan so- one somewhere it- now. <laughs> yeah, surely there's a vegan <laughs> option, right? It's true. There is there is a vegan version of of Duna, but um, I don't you know falafel all the way. There were some shout outs for the falafel. I have to admit mm-hmm. that. People did point out that there are good vegetarian and vegan options. As Although, well. I, you know, I have to say, I, I don't think falafel is really natively German, so I, I don't know that it counts. <laughs> Germans are all for meat, whatever is meat. Yeah, if I put schoifele as the third option, I think schoifele would have won <laughs> exactly. in a landslide. Yeah. But I think there's like a trick of the falafel is if you deep fry it, then everything becomes delicious. Like that's the process, right? You deep fry anything, it's amazing. So deep fry some vegetables. The, the Japanese have got, is it tempura? So I mean, like they worked yeah. it out before anyone else. So. Like you've referenced tempura, but what you really mean is greasy Scottish fish and chips. What I actually mean is a deep fried Snickers bar, which is one of the finest like things to eat, but also you feel your own death as you're eating it. You're very aware of your own mortality as you eat a deep fried Snickers bar. They're vegan as well, I think, aren't they? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you don't want to eat a lot of those. I had friends who had one once a week and I see their photos on Facebook and I'm like, yeah, you should have given up smoking and eating them deep fried, deep fried chocolate bars. But I, I got to give a shout out to the bowel tasha you know if you're if you're a vegetarian that's mm. actually a good meal sometimes do you have it so. in soup or do you fry it? i don't make it myself other <laughs> however they're making oh okay <laughs> it's like that is it <laughs> i did this grand tour of bavaria for a guidebook and that's how i was introduced to the malatashan which i had always thought were not vegetarian that's the the german dish that mm-hmm. vegetarians can eat yeah when we've gone with vegetarians because you always sort of go to the worst tourist traps when you have your friends come over and we went to the hofbrau house and it's like the first time i'd ever gone and it's 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 bad as you'd imagine mm-hmm. right but 
I remember my my brother's girlfriend looking at the menu and she was a vegetarian and she's like, what are the vegetarian options? And the waiter in typical German customer service fashion went, we have salads. <laughs> I was just like, okay. And it's like, one of those salads is a fist salad. <laughs> I mean, we, well, we take out the piss out of the Germans, but when I was in France, they were like, here's a tuna fish salad, man. You, it's salad. It says salad. Oh yeah, no, I don't think it's a particularly uh, German thing. I just think there's a lot of a lot of the food, especially in the south where, where we are, it's meat or nothing. Do you want a really good dinner, or do you want to have like some cabbage? Because that's what that's your options. You know, you can have a, a close with a side salad and. Bada bing, you've got the vegetarian option. When we were down by Neuschwanstein, we were staying at this this hotel that was like a, a stop on the mm-hmm. Chinese tourist buses because they had that, I don't know what this is, this like coila of, it's got a bone sticking out of it and it's got brown <laughs> sauce around it. I don't know, it looks disgusting to me. It's some sort of like mm-hmm. chicken leg that's done German style, but I think it's out of pork. I don't know what it's called. And they were like, oh yeah every chinese tourist has to come here like it's their thing <laughs> they gotta try out this particularly disgusting german meal <laughs> and it was just, i mean it was just like hundreds of they just kept filing in to eat this pork off the bone and after that i was like i think i'm gonna have to plan the restaurants that i go to because <laughs> i don't think this is a country for vegetarians i think it's the british do the same thing but we do it with pubs so we're like oh we're going to prague like we don't have like a top 10 list of places to eat it's like the top 10 bars to visit like where, where's the best place to vomit you know like that kind of information is vital to the the british holiday maker it's never like where are the best restaurants in prague it's it's always something heinous and horrendous um and then if you go on holiday to spain or portugal as a british person you've basically just entered like the second British Empire, because there's just colonies of British people who've set up pubs based on British sitcoms, and there'll be like a Red Lion pub. There's always a Red Lion pub. I don't know how, but there always is a pub called the Red Lion, and there's a bloke who's got a tan that's about 18 layers deep with like a Yorkshire accent serving pints behind the bar. Big gas, exactly big gas behind big the bar. Big gas, it's always, yeah, it's big gas or, or Barry. <laughs> As you know from last week's show, Simon has suddenly become the Nuremberg Land's equivalent of the man from Del Monte. For plums, at least. Simon, how's your bumper crop of fruit coming along? Have you made any booze yet? So I've got some plum vodka that's uh, that's on the go. So I've got just over a litre of that. Um, got three jars of compote. And I've got probably two kilos of plums frozen now, ready for, for caking and baking. So yeah, there's, there's no shortage of plums, but... You, you moved, you moved yeah. out of the city and instantly became like a country gentleman with your orchard and... Do you have like a, a coat with leather patches on the arms, like a tweed jacket and that? I, no, I don't. But I do have my granddad gave me his barber uh, jacket that I do need to have like re-tailored because I, I do want to wear it because it is, it's a nice barber. Solid. I'm, I'm trying my best. I'm trying to keep up these English standards that the Germans have about how well we keep our gardens. But yeah, there's been a lot of work, right? So far, about seven kilos of fruit come out of this garden and there's still apples to deal with as well. So yeah. Moving from the city to the suburbs has definitely made me revisit gardening. I hadn't done any of that for, for years. It's been very nice, very relaxing. Our neighbour keeps telling us to cut down all our fruit trees. I didn't know we had any. We've only been in the house for two weeks, but they were like, we need to cut down that fruit tree. And I'm like, which tree? <laughs> which tree are you talking about? <laughs> the one with the fruit. Which? Do- oh, right, yeah, they're fruit. All oh, right, okay. I've never seen them that aren't in plastic packaging, so it's a surprise to me 
what they look like in the wild. Well, we also have a tree that uh, the the family that owned this house for 30 years before were from Turkey. And so we've got lots of Turkish uh, grapevines and we've got Turkish flowers and things. It's, it's very interesting. But there's one tree that the owner was like, I don't know what it is. I know it's special. It's from Turkey and it shouldn't have fruit and it's now growing fruit. So I'm going to find out a little bit something new about Turkish fruit in the, in the weeks ahead. So that's something to look forward to, listeners. <laughs> I, I have to say, as an American listening to this conversation, we are taught to never eat <laughs> berries in the wild, to never forage for mushrooms. And I'm just fucking amazed by how people here are like, well, it's growing, so I might as well just, you know, make some brandy out of it. <laughs> yeah, give it a crack, you know, you never know, get like some the, booze. We have chestnut trees in this park near my house that people come and collect and roast them. And I'm like, uh, are you sure you're not going to die? Like, I mean, I've been here for 16 years. I can't get over this. Don't eat the fruit. It's all natural. That's the, that's the way we live here in Bavaria. We live in we're a veritable Garden of Eden. We're just walking around plucking plucking apples off the tree and sort of filling our, filling our like um, reusable bags with oranges, that kind of jazz. Well, they, I mean, they, they even sent an alert out to doctor's offices a few years ago that there were so many elderly people poisoning themselves with zucchini because there is a kind of zucchini that can be poisonous and they didn't realize it and they were like growing these wild zucchinis and then making soups out of it. And because they lost all their taste buds, they weren't tasting that it's super, super bitter. No <laughs> and, and like we left there was literally there was a, a guy I think in Frankfurt who died from eating too much of the wow. zucchini soup and that just confirmed for me like you can have whatever fruit trees you want that should stay on the ground now I'm scared like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. but let me know in a couple of months Simon how that brandy turns yeah. out <laughs> <laughs> suddenly in the, in the Nuremberg news an Englishman has died <laughs> Yeah, if, if I give you something with plums in it for Christmas, it's, it's not that batch. Totally unrelated. <laughs> Episode 39 is here, my dears. Edging ever closer to the big 50. Crikey. Drop date for episode 39 is the 11th of September. A day of infamy in modern history, no question about it. But on a personal level, it's a day I've grown fond of, as today is my wife and I's wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary, my dear. Who would have thought that for our sixth anniversary, you'd be getting a shout out on an English language podcast about your country? You lucky lady, you. <laughs> With anniversary gifts in the US and the UK, there are designated materials for what gift you should give. This year is iron and or candy. So can you guess what she's getting? Is it iron or candy? Or is it both? Ooh. I was going to say like candies made out of iron would make the most sense. Or <laughs> iron shaped candies? I don't know if that's a thing. I'm sure there's some Victorian candy that has iron in it I can find. Yeah. Courtney, what do you think? You've got to have better ideas than I have. I, well, I was thinking like, what do I know that's made out of iron besides like a, an iron for ironing your clothes? <laughs> and I was thinking like, yeah. give that to your wife and she's probably going to divorce you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do the iron. So it'd be a gift for me if I did that. Or the other, the only other thing is a horseshoe. And that's what comes up if you go into Amazon and put in <laughs> gifts, wedding anniversary iron, but it's not a horseshoe. All will be revealed on the next episode. What? Yeah, I, I'm building suspense here, mate. Didn't know there was a to be continued. I feel like I've been robbed here. Oh. Yeah, you have to wait with bated breath, just like the rest of the listeners. My father's side hail from the West Midlands in the UK, the Black Country, as it's often called. I lived near to the very first iron bridge the world had ever seen in the town of, cleverly named, Ironbridge Gorge, Shropshire. 
So I'm going to claim that the gift of iron is some sort of capped off to my heritage as opposed to some kind of slightly funny joke. My wedding anniversary, though, is not the grand historical moment some of our listeners have come to expect <laughs> from this opening gambit. We're going to have a look at a far more significant moment that took place on September 11th, all the way back in 9 AD, the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. Teutoburg Forest is often referred to as one of the most significant defeats in the history of the Roman Empire, bringing the period of expansion under Augustus to an end. This loss halted the Romans in their ambition of conquering Germania and is therefore considered one of the most important events in European history. The provinces of Germania Superior and Germania Inferior, sometimes collectively referred to as Roman Germania, were subsequently established in northeast Roman Gaul, while territories beyond the Rhine remained independent of Roman control. Campaigns of retaliation were commanded by Tiberius and Germanicus and would enjoy success, but the mighty Rhine would eventually become the border between the Roman Empire and the rest of Germania. The Roman Empire would launch no major incursions into Germania until Marcus Aurelius during the Marcomannic Wars. And obviously Marcus Aurelius is uh, famous for being a gladiator. He was Russell Crowe's dad. It's good that we established the timeline in the Russell Crowe universe. Yeah. In September 9 AD, Varus was prepared to leave the summer headquarters and march three legions, the 17th, 18th and 19th, within two modern-day mines. When news arrived from the Germanic prince Arminius, a Roman citizen and leader of an auxiliary cavalry unit of a growing revolt in the Rhine area to the west. Ignoring a warning to not trust Arminius, Varus marched his forces onward. Not only was Varus's trust in Arminius a terrible misjudgment, but Varus compounded it by placing his legions in a position where their fighting strengths would be minimised and those of the Germanic tribes were maximised. Expecting no ambush and very little trouble in intimidating the rebels, Arminius and the Cherusci tribe, along with other allies, had skillfully laid an ambush. And in the Battle of Teutoburg Forest in September at Calchrys, east of what is modern Osnabrück, the Romans marched right into it. What's really funny about Arminius is like he, he was a guy who knew how to play the long game. So depending on how you read history, he was the son of a chieftain who was either kidnapped and taken as a hostage to Rome and raised as a Roman, or he was someone who, who volunteered to join the Roman legionaries and fight for Rome and became a Roman citizen. But either way, he becomes a Roman citizen, learns all their tactics, and then goes back to Germania and then just totally canes the Roman army. I can't work out whether it's it's a moment of opportunism or whether he, from a very early age, was like, I'm really going to screw these guys over. Because the way he went about doing it was pretty comprehensive. And it, was, it wasn't just one battle, it was a days and days of engagements as the rebels and Arminius just took apart this Roman column piece by piece. Horrendous. On the third day of fighting, the Germans overwhelmed the Romans at Kalkreiser Hill, north of Osnabrück. Accounts of the defeat are scarce to the totality of the defeat, but also any information we do get is from the Romans. Germans didn't really have any written records to speak of, so most of the, the information comes from Roman writers writing 50 to 100, 200 years later. Savarus himself, upon seeing all hope was lost, committed suicide by falling on his sword. Arminius cut off his head and sent it to Bohemia as a present to, the, to King Marbod of the Marco Mani, the other most important Germanic leader, whom Arminius wanted to coax into an alliance. But Marbod declined the offer and sent the head on to Rome for burial. Yeah, it seems like it's a shitty gift to try and form an alliance. He is like a dude's head. Let's be friends. Imagine if I tried that with you, Simon. That would have probably gone down quite poorly in the pub. I mean, yeah, we're, we're 2,000 years on. So, yeah, uh, etiquette <laughs> has definitely changed. Some captured Romans were caged and burnt alive. Others were enslaved or ransomed. Tacitus and Florus reported that victorious Germanic tribes tortured and sacrificed captive officers to their gods on altars that could be seen years later. The defeat was so significant for the Roman forces that legion numbers 17, 18 and 19 were never used again. Upon hearing the news, Augustus tore his clothes, 
refused to cut his hair for months, and for years afterwards was heard upon occasion to moan, Quintilius Varus, give me back my legions. Quintilivare, legiones rede. Right, enough about the Roman Empire. We here at Decades From Home know that when it comes to icons of international leadership, there is only one person who deserves our total devotion and unending respect. One person who has the innate power and personality to unite nations, bringing them together through respect, love and freedom. One person whose voice can awaken the souls of all who hear it, firing them into states of adulation and frenzy. There is only one, one supreme leader, one to follow, one to strive to mimic, one half. Fans around the world, whether it be due to his role of Mitch in Baywatch, Michael Knight in Knight Rider, or any of his super, triple, double, quadruple platinum records, or his single-handed unifying of the nation, have had to wait too long for the Hoff to give them a reason to rock up to their local record store and buy the latest drop of the Hoff. A drop of the Hoff sounds like one of his albums. In these times of hardship, it seems the Hoff has heard our prayers and decided, in his benevolence, to provide us with a beacon of light shining on a hilltop a light through the fog of COVID and other awful shit. Available now worldwide is the latest Hoff album, Party Your Hasselhoff. But um, first things first, <laughs> what do you think of the album name? Uh, actually, I think we have to ask Courtney this because I think she'll really appreciate this question. What do you think of the, the <laughs> album name, Party Your Hasselhoff? I can't believe we're actually asking a serious person this question, but here we are. Is this what you imagined was going to happen, Courtney? <laughs> going to be asked about it. I'm so proud to be using my intellect for such endeavors. <laughs> I never knew that as a child watching Baywatch would in some way make a difference in my life. Yeah, you are. You're font of all knowledge now. If you're saying you've watched uh, a lot of Baywatch, have a very strong opinion about David I think I think one of my uncles really liked Knight Rider, so I'm familiar with his mm. oeuvre, as they say. <laughs> I love how you bring in just a hint of class to this discussion that we could never bring to it. Was completely unaware of his standing in Germany but I understand more and more now when when they really have such an affinity for David Hasselhoff no wonder they say that Americans have no culture like <laughs> <laughs> he's the flag bearer yeah. we've mentioned him I mean the most recent mention of the Hasselhoff on the show was when he did the adverts for Armel Hoch and he had him in his LA mansion reading sort of verbatim German text he has better pronunciation than I do I was quite that's quite upset how is this guy getting it right and I'm not the Hoff knows what his audience wants, and so the album inevitably comes with a strong German lilt. The Hoff declares in a booming, strong voice, many of the songs I have selected only because they were hits in Germany. The 80s and 90s were great years in which we and I had so much fun. I bet he had loads of fun. It was the 80s after all. I feel better already. Uh, the record includes a cover of my personal karaoke go-to as well, which is Iggy Pop's The Passenger, uh, a song inspired by a ride on Berlin's S-Bahn train written while Iggy was living in the city with David Bowie, not the Hoff, in the mid-70s. It is To Bring Up My Wife Once Again, the first song she ever heard me sing in a drunken pub party many moons ago. I haven't heard the Hoff's version of it yet, and maybe I never will, because any attempt to compare my own feeble abilities to those of the pop giants will surely only lead to a deep depression as I'm stuck on my <laughs> own meek mic skills. You don't go messing with kings. My God, I can't believe he's done a cover of The Passenger. It's not going to be good, this album, is it? It's not going to be the light at the end of the tunnel. It's just not going to be that good. Like, how dare you? Come on. Back me up, Courtney. This is going to be shit, right? <laughs> oh. Nick, I, can't, I cannot believe this is even a question. Will David Hasselhoff's music be good? Hey. 
Have you heard "Get in My Car"? It's a great, it's a great song. Yeah, he's not, he's not writing this. This is, a, this is an advantage. I have never heard David Hasselhoff sing, and the day that I do will be a sad, sad day. You never heard uh, "I've Been Looking for Freedom." It's, it's no. a song for the ages. You know, like it really, it's inspired many acts of freedom no it hasn't <laughs> i'm impressed you've managed to avoid it it is it's in every pub i've been in at the end of the night it's, some madman puts it on <laughs> yeah it's usually one of us that's the bloody problem yeah, yeah. also included on the list of feel-good hits is england football's european championship anthem neil diamond's sweet caroline whoa whoa, whoa. i was <laughs> i was made for loving you by oh jeez, what have i become i was made for loving you by kiss I just died in your arms tonight by Cutting Crew. That's an excellent tune, but I can't imagine not getting better, is it, Courtney? Getting goosebumps already, just thinking about it. Oh, my God. And Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Hit after hit after bloody hit. Yeah. His Hoffness has also gone about recording an English-language version of Damn, I Love You by German singer-songwriter Matthias Rohm, which has reached number one on the charts almost exactly one year after his Berlin wall-toppling super anthem, Looking for Freedom topped the German chart. The Hoff showing his understanding and empathy for the huddled masses proclaimed from on high, people want a good mood and boy oh boy does it look like he has set, set us up for that. So good listeners of Decades From Home, if you're slowly opening up to the world again after the bleak year and a half we've all just gone through and you're looking for a soundtrack to the new roaring 20s, look no further than Party Your Hasselhoff. Can't believe it's his name so fucking awful. Enjoy the new world my friends, embrace your vaxxed loved ones, share a drink and a laugh with those dear to you. And then, when it's possible, get out there and party your goddamn Hasselhoff. We've never been shy about giving our political opinions on the podcast, but we often lean heavily towards the UK and only occasionally focus on the wild ride that is German politics. Perhaps it's because British politics is such a dumpster fire at the moment, and by comparison, Germany seems relatively stable. But is it? Well, we're about to find out as we make up for lost time and turn to stare deeply into the German politics vortex. But we're going to need some help. Even with Simon in full research mode, we couldn't hope to cover all the ups and downs as Germany careens towards the elections at the end of this month. So we called in the backup. Courtney Tenz has lived in Germany since 2005 and has worked as a lecturer, speaker, journalist and writer with her work featuring in The Cut, Marie Claire, Artsy and Time Out. There's a lot of things to discuss with Germany's upcoming election, but I guess the headline is this will be the first election in 15 years not to feature Angela Merkel as candidate. She's leaving office as the most popular politician in Germany. Courtney, you've lived in Germany since Merkel was first elected. What's been your experience in Merkel's Germany? Um, I actually came here in September of 2005, um, and one of my first weeks here was the first debate between um, Angela Merkel and uh, Gerhard Schroeder. Ben, I'd been here before, and in fact, um, we were at the opening of the Reichstag building in Berlin in 1999 and met Gerhard Schröder there. So I kind of came into it like, oh, I don't know much about politics, but I do know Gerhard Schröder and I like the idea of social democracy, but my German wasn't good enough to really be paying attention to the, to the election. I wasn't really familiar with the parties themselves, but also German history and even more so had no idea about the gender politics of, you know, electing. And Angela Merkel is not actually the very first uh, woman chancellor in all of German history. There was one who was in the former East for like six months or a year or something like that. 
So people tend to say, okay, you know, she's not the first one. Germany's done this before, blah, blah, blah. Um, the gender political issue um, at the time felt to me like it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal that she was a woman being elected. And a much bigger deal was everybody hated Gerhard Schröder. And he had called that election like as a special election in order to secure his, his spot. So the bigger deal with him being ousted by Merkel was less that she was a woman and much more that he had failed in his campaign, but also in his policies. And his policies, you know, like Hatz IV, the unemployment law, that was, a, you know, a big issue. Uh, his natural gas pipeline that he's affiliated with now still today. And I do think that the decision for the German army to support American troops in Afghanistan and support American troops in Iraq is as much as they you know, didn't support them, I think those decisions did torpedo part of Gerhard Schroeder's career. I think that, that Germany didn't like to see themselves as a belligerent nation. And those kinds of issues were kind of you know, out on the table. But as, a, as a, someone who didn't really speak the language and who didn't really care too much about the country because I didn't think I would be here very long, it just felt like, Math, this is another election, but also thank God there's no George W. Bush here. The two different parties that existed in Germany just seemed much more rational and sane than what we were dealing with in the U.S. at the time. But you asked about my journey, and that journey has shifted tremendously over 16 years. So. You're saying at the time there wasn't a, a big sense that like this is groundbreaking or this is a big change. I mean, with Margaret Thatcher in, in Britain, it was a big thing. And again, with Theresa May and obviously with Hillary Clinton's potential to become the president in, in 2016, there was big discussions about a woman in power. Are you saying that in Germany it wasn't really a big thing? or It's difficult for me to answer that because my connection to German people and Germany at the time was so fragile. I had just gotten here, um, knew very few people. I had very little to do with people outside of the research that I was doing. So it was hard to make a judgment, but the day that she was elected, we were at a, a house party for a friend of mine, her parents were there, her, her high school friends were there, and they were all um, people who'd grown up on the border between East and West Germany. And oh, <laughs> I said to some to one of them, what a historic moment, you know, you you might have a, a female chancellor tomorrow. The guy said back to me something like, oh, no, no, you know, she won't be my chancellor. I don't have enough money, right? And so it was like this clear line that the CDU stood for people who were wealthier or who weren't um, as... We'll say as, as invested in their money. And as a result, it didn't feel to me too much like a, a boon for a woman to be in power. I really, as an, you know, as an American, but I never called myself a feminist, but as an American, I thought, wow, this is kind of amazing. We've had 40 presidents, none of whom have been women, you know? Um, and yeah, it just seemed to be a completely different feeling at the time. I definitely think that in, in the years that followed, her gender became a much bigger deal in large part because of um, the way that the international media responded to her and to her policies and the vision that they had for what Germany was as a country. Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's interesting bringing up the fact that politics back home was so twisted at that point with Bush that sort of German politics sort of served as a sort of a safe haven almost. Do you still feel that way now? And did the last US president sort of turn that up a little bit as well, that feeling? You know, that's a really interesting question. At the time, I think 
this this episode is going to air on September 11th, so I'm just going to go back to that. I think it's not a date that we need to necessarily talk about, but it's one that influenced my life heavily. I was living in Boston at the time, trying to evacuate my baby sister from New York and uh, couldn't get her out. Phone lines were down and it just completely devastated me. And it just felt like in an instant, everything in the U.S. shifted. I was younger at that time than I am now, clearly, but also like just mentally much younger. And I had no interest in politics and no interest in who our president was. I had voted, but you know, I just like, Bush just drove me crazy. So I never turned on the TV. I was never interested in foreign policy, even though it impacted my life in a lot of ways. And the time between then and my decision to come to Germany in 2005 was just so belligerent and so the drum beats of war were everywhere and in the background and you weren't a patriot and you know get your flag out and i really wanted something different than that the media was terrible at that time um, leading up to the Iraq war. So around 2003, I had come to Germany um, on a visit and it just seemed more sane here. And there were protests against the war. And I thought, wow, people actually care. In the U.S., you, you didn't necessarily speak out against the Iraq war because it could impact your job chances. It could impact, you know, how you dealt with people. And it just felt to me like I can have a stance against the war and still carry on with my life and carry on with my day. And I bought into the theory and the ideology that Germany had dealt with its past, which I no longer buy into, but I did at the time. And I thought, won't it be great to be in a pacifist nation, one which actively goes against these things that I'm against. And it felt to me, because there were so many protests, because there were so many people outspoken against the war in Iraq, that when I got to Germany, I would be around like-minded people in that way. So in that regard, I felt like, yeah, this this feels a lot different here. Um, it feels more like people are actively involved in their democracy. Your voice is heard if it's, if it's anti-war. I think that in a lot of ways, German politics felt just saner than what we were dealing with in the U.S. It just felt like a huge contrast to be in in Germany while that was while that was going on in the US. I always sort of make fun of German politics and be like, it's quite boring, but that's like a good thing. I've noticed things this election that suggest there's there's a, there's a more than a hint of the things I saw in 2016. But even in 2017, when everyone was losing their minds about the AfD, I was like, it's not Brexit, it's not Trump, it's not as big, you know? It, it felt like there was a lot of alarmist, oh my God, it's happening again, you know? The kind of feeling, especially in the media, a lot of sort of clutching at pearls. And I was always like, well, they're in the parliament. There's, they're actually restricted by being in the opposition. They've got an official position. They can't get away with half the stuff like UKIP did in Britain or Trump could do with, with Twitter, for instance. There was no sort of restraint in uh, those elements. Is there a sense that maybe like German politics might be a bit spicier than it was in 2005, but it's by no ways as polarized or as broken perhaps than the Brit Britain and America is at the moment? Well, you know, Nick, um, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm going to say here and that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that I don't, I, I don't like to make comparisons. Um, I don't think it's, it's useful to compare the American and the, the British political systems 
in part because the German political system is based on both of those countries, but like is supposed to take the better portions of those of our constitution. I think Germany has a lot less room to fall backwards than the US or the UK. And I think that the party whose name shall not be mentioned by me was a real concern and only got the attention because Merkel was still in power. If if she hadn't been, they wouldn't have been given as much attention because so much of what they ran on was misogyny. And Germany has a real problem with misogyny. And so it was easier for them to pull a select group of voters from the CDU in order to spite them because they didn't want a woman anymore in charge. And I think that what we've seen since then has been the CDU shift further right in order to accommodate them. And in that respect, I think this election has gotten spicier in a lot of ways. Interesting, yeah. But also more dangerous because of the shifts that we've seen in the established parties. And I think that the tactics that were used initially in American politics of distraction, diversion, you can often see being used now today. So we see particular politicians not answering questions in a way that it wasn't just the the people in 2016. You know, we've we've had that tradition in the US. How do you rhetorically respond to a question without actually responding to it? That that's a established American political tradition. And Germans are getting that now, I think in part because of the openness of media, because people are so much better connected to what they're doing. Nobody knew before what they were up to. Nobody cared before what they were up to. Shortly after the 2016 election in the US, there was a lot of strategizing that was going on with how to use social media in a particular way. And they determined um, from a communications perspective, we all know, and it's an advertising psychology uh, technique, the emotion that people respond most strongly to is fear. So you have social media strategists who are working with political strategists who say your talking points are going to have to be fear-driven talking points in order for people to remember you. So you have a tactic of diversion and distraction, and then the thing that you do say ends up being something that's fear-inducing. Then you've got your campaign locked because the media are in step with that. And, and the PR firms are in step with the media. So all of that becomes this like sort of like circle of we're not actually talking about the issues. We're not talking about the problems that we're facing. We're not talking about solutions, but we are going to make mm-hmm. you afraid of something. And we know that the Austrian um, election that came up right after that used some of the same consultants. We also know that the people who are running at least one of the campaigns uh, in Germany are uh, also well-versed in those political media strategies and are also well embedded within German media. So I think that we have, you know, seen the techniques and the tactics of 2016 employed in Germany in that way, but I don't see it being as strongly picked up upon by the public. I see it in the media, but I don't see it in the public. Well, I've always thought that I mean, certainly with data collection, you can't like the amount of data you can collect from people in America is like it's almost infinite at this point. It seems like there isn't really a concept of data protection. Either people are sharing all their data or things are like data leaks a lot more um, in the US than it does in, 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 in Germany. And I would have thought like one of the things that, that I always 
always find interesting about German elections is the fact that they rely so heavily on quite outmoded ways of campaigning that that you don't you certainly don't see the level of Facebook advertising that you saw you saw in sort of British elections or in, in American elections so there is like a lo-fi element to it so I was always interested to know like how, how uh, there's, there's two questions I basically want to ask here but I'll, I'll sort of ask them in reverse but the uh, one question is about the the um, the the once in a lifetime election idea but we'll I'll ask that second but the the, the first thing I wanted to ask was is it is it not the case that there are limits to what politicians can actually get away with in a way in Germany that, that they don't really have in, in, in obviously Britain or America for this in these examples there is like Twitter isn't as big what's like 5 million Twi German Twitter users 6 million Twitter users there isn't that many Twitter users Twitter doesn't have as much of an impact potentially as, as it did in, 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 in other elections social media doesn't have the same level of impact it's still relying on like the debate or the um the the sort of political tv shows and waiting for gaffes for them to to do when they're being interviewed or a lot of Laschet's gaffes have been um and Laschet the head of the CDU his his um his, his major gaffes have all been televised right they've all been television interviews or interviews with journalists rather than sort of um the the sort of um well-honed media skills that you'd expect from a David Cameron or the kind of performance style PR that Boris Johnson does or the, oh, well, I don't know what Trump did, but it was terrifying. But like in the sort of all-encompassing control of the media cycle, that doesn't seem to happen. Like it doesn't seem to be in the same way. Again, I know you don't like comparisons, but I think like in that sense, I think there's a comparison worth being made. Don't you think? Um, <laughs> again, I, I guess I have to say, like, you know, I'm not a political consultant. Um, I mm. understand how political strategy works and I understand how communications work and I understand the German media landscape very well. But I think what you have to understand mm. is that 40% of the voters in this election are old. They aren't people on Facebook or Twitter. Mm. You don't need them for a majority. And if you look at how the party lines are are, are, are the polls are divvying it out across party lines, you need 20% of the vote. If you've got the over 60 population, you've got 40% of the vote. What do you need Facebook for? What do you need Twitter for? You've got your mm -hmm. election locked with these old people. And that's not like to insult people who are of a certain age. I think there's um, definitely something to be said for the diversity and the variety that exists amongst them but they're not on Facebook, mm -hmm. they're not on Twitter, and there's no need to try and target market to them through social media. Mm -hmm. But instead, we have to view social media as a tool that's being used in order to control the what the right wing calls, and I hate the word for, the mainstream media, right? How do you get into mm -hmm. the news mm -hmm. cycle? Well the number 45 president from the US whose name will never be said by my mouth, um, he understood that the only people who are on Twitter are media folks. That's, that's how it's used. It's mm -hmm. for media people to talk to other media people to get an idea of what the real people are talking about, but they're all so siloed in their lives that when they go on Twitter, it's just them talking about it. But that's what de determines the stories that show up in editorial meetings. 
And, you know, if you've sit and sat in a newsroom, you'll see this. You'll see their, their you know, Twitter feeds are lined up with, like, this is the topic I'm interested in. So, you know, you have, like, a list of Germans, people in Germany, and then you'll see, you know, a hundred editors, you know, tweets showing up in there. So you know that if you want to um, control a media narrative, you're going to just pop onto Twitter. You don't need access to the journalists anymore. And then those editors are going to go into their TV broadcast newsroom and say, what are people talking about today? What do we need to put on the Tagesschau? What do we need to put on the Tagesthema? And on top of that, they have these super old talk show formats where they invite people to come and have a conversation, even if they're completely unqualified to have that conversation. And where do they find their experts? They find their experts either through the university or through um, a political office because those people are free. The, the, TV does, the TV studio does not have to pay a university professor to come on uh, and opine on a topic. It doesn't even matter if he knows anything about what he's talking about. He's required to do that as part of the PR for the university as part of his contract. So of course you're gonna see them. And of course Germans believe in the hierarchy of if you have professor doctor in front of your name, then you are smarter than everybody <laughs> yeah. else. So that's how you get your attention, your, your, your sort of media narrative news cycle going. You put it on Twitter so that the media people will pick it up. <laughs> the media people will pick it up and put you on their TV shows. And then you are talking to grandma and that's all you need to do. That's how that works. And that way, that's very different than in the U.S., which has 24-hour news stations, four or five of them competing with each other, and everybody has to have an opinion on it, but it has to fit into this you know, far-right opinion or this mm. centrist opinion or blah, 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 and we can't make our advertisers mad. That's another thing that's very different about television and, and media in the U.S. You have to appeal to the advertisers. You, know, you can't make the owners of the, the TV station mad. And in that way, I think it's, it's just not comparable to look at German media and the German media techniques that are being used by political parties. That isn't to say that they aren't geo-targeting Facebook ads and you just happen to not be getting them. And I honestly, I think whatever you think about how good German data protection is, it, these people use WhatsApp every day. There is no protection on that app. Nobody cares about their data. It must be good. It's it's so fucking hard to get any data from anywhere or share it with anyone. Who is it who could share my own data? That was it. The people who could do my uh, pay slips from for my job couldn't send me the pay slip because it would have been in breach of, of Daten Schutz. And I'm like, but it's my, it's my fucking information. Like, give me my information. It's mine. Like, but they, they couldn't share it with me. It's wild. So you just assume it must be good. Data <laughs> privacy is the the be all end all excuse to do nothing that they don't want to do. Are you shattering all my illusions here? <laughs> Teachers are using it so they don't have to stream their lessons so that kids can get a digital learning. They are using it to uh, pretend like they can't give you information. But if you fax that same form to them, they can give you the information. The difference is that, that they want to pretend that they can't because your email server or something is not, you know, hmm. I mean, it's, it's an excuse and it's a stupid one and it, you know, it, that doesn't mean that I want to have any less data privacy than I already have, because I do know that there are some things that are good mm -hmm. about it on a technical level or technological level. But I think it's, um, I, I don't think that we're missing the CDU's uh, Facebook advertisements because they protect our data or respect our data privacy. We're missing them because they know that nobody who's 40 years old and speaks English is going to vote for them. <laughs> How, I wonder how they work that one out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
the question I really have for Courtney is, do you think that like, the vast selection of parties you can vote for in Germany make it easier to have disagreements with people around you, whether it be politically or in your community? Like in a two-party system or a three-party system, it's kind of us versus them, whereas here you can there are so many different ways you can tag yourself. Do you think it makes it easier for people to get along? I don't necessarily think that the dichotomous nature of uh, American politics or maybe, you know, even the UK politics necessarily translates into Germany. I don't think that the plethora of parties that you can vote for in any way makes it easier to discuss politics. And that has less, much less to do with party stances than it has to do with class. I think that Germany is an extremely hierarchical country. I don't I don't think I'm the only person to say this. Most intercultural trainers will say it as well. Um and there's a deference that's built into the system from, you know, the time that kids are put into kindergarten, even where they're born. Um all of those hierarchies are already existent. And the parties that um that people you know, you know, um the Greens, the SPD, the CDU, uh, the FDP, I think, is newer, but they know it, are traditionally siloed or, or, or organized into those hierarchies, right? The people who earn this much vote for them, mm-hmm. and the people who earn this much vote for them. The SPD has more traditionally been a working class party. And so you you wore your party allegiance mm-hmm. in a way differently here than you did in the U.S. You know, in the U.S., it used to be like the Democrats were for the unions and uh, the Republicans were for for white people or what you know like all of those criteria were existent before mr 45 got elected they're less secure now than they had been and in germany i think those hierarchies still exist where people will still say i i like the greens i like their policies but they're the party that only wealthy people can vote for and um, because i'm middle class i have to vote for the spd Mm -hmm. And in that respect, then the issues that you want to discuss that are, in my mind, inherently political are extremely difficult to discuss. I think that you have a hard time having a conversation with people about the state of German schools, right? People get very defensive Mm -hmm. about their educations, even though we know for 16 years, Germany has not gotten their shit together when it comes to educating students. And in fact, two thirds of of kids who are surveyed say they don't believe they are actually capable of accomplishing whatever degree they're supposed to get, whether they're in Hauptschule or Gymnasium or Gesamtschule. When two thirds of your student population does not actually believe that they're worthy of a diploma or that they can actually make it to the end of their high school career you know you have a problem with education and if i have that conversation with people on a political level and i say well the spd is selling themselves right now as pro-education but we haven't seen any policies for Mm -hmm. what that looks like then people will say well no it's not the spd's fault it's the cdu's Mm -hmm. fault because we don't want any more taxes the cdu said that they weren't going to invest in our schools blah 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 so you're no longer having a conversation about schools and the state of schools you're having a, a sort of like a an American style bipartisan ping pong. I'm not responsible. I'm not responsible. Nobody's responsible. Our schools suck. Oh, well, we're going to figure it out later. (laughs) And in that respect, I think it's much harder to have topic based conversations here than it was ever in the U S before 45 Mm -hmm. came. 
I think that since 45 came, people have brain worms. You can't have a conversation about anything mm. in the US. So that comparison is a little bit, you know, outdated. Obviously, we've mentioned that Merkel is going to retire. She isn't seeking any other political office. So she's going to be off the political map entirely. Might be a good point to ask. What do you think Merkel's legacy is after a tenure in power for so long? And whether um, that's something that's perhaps going to be continued by her successors? First of all, I don't think that she's completely leaving. I think she's leaving public office, but I don't think she's not going to have anything to do with politics. I think her influence is is felt and can be felt from behind the scenes. I think she's never been one to really stand out uh, in public since she secured the chancellorship. You know, she's she's not always the person who you see in front of TV cameras. She doesn't have Twitter for a reason. But I, I think her legacy is one that you can learn. You, know, you can learn a lot from looking at, at her career. So I wrote this article that says, Angela Merkel is not your feminist icon. And the idea behind that article was not necessarily that I don't like Angela Merkel. I think that her politics have not been entirely woman-friendly or child-friendly in the way that people believe they should be. I think theoretically, you have a woman in charge, you assume that things are gonna get easier for women. And you can only assume that in a country as misogynistic as Germany, because we know that if a man is in charge, we will have some of these rights rolled back and they were already very fragile. If women couldn't work without their husband's permission until 1974, we have not come that far. And yet Angela Merkel did do a lot for women in Germany. But more importantly, I think she showed that there is staying power for women in politics. And I think that that is a lesson that the world can learn, that women do have uh, a stance and they can lead a, a powerful country. I think my kid at one point had a female mayor, a female uh, governor, and a female chancellor. So when the US election happened and Hillary Clinton was not elected, the question that my kid posed was, why can't, an, why can't a woman be American president? And that was a question that I would never have asked growing up in the US. I only saw white men. There were, you know, we never, the, the question was like, who was gonna be the first female president for us for a long time in a way that my kid didn't have? And, you know, it, they make the joke about it now, like, oh, who's going to be the Kanzlerin next time, you know? Um, but representation matters. And I think that that's going to be her legacy is going to be one of in which you can say, oh, yeah, women can do this job and they're pretty good at it. Unfortunately, I think her legacy will also be um, intimately intertwined with Wolfgang Schäuble's Black Zero strategy of austerity and not in a positive way. I think we're seeing the impact of that in North and West Fallen with crumbling infrastructure, crumbling schools, um, bankrupt cities, high levels of poverty. Can't blame Merkel necessarily for that, but her party and her party politics did that. I think the inability to evacuate people from Afghanistan is also intimately connected, not to her necessarily, but to her choice of ministers who made it almost impossible to get people out. I think that all of those things are going to be a part of her legacy for better or for worse. At the same time, I think that she did a better job than most men could have done in her position. 
I think her neutrality when it came to foreign policy issues was something that I really respected. When Merkel was running in 2005, she wasn't really rated by certainly pundits and other politicians. And I, I imagine they didn't predict that she'd be in power for as long as she was. Uh, do you think there are, uh, from the current lineup of potential candidates, there might be anyone who could uh, pull a Merkel, as it were, mm -hmm. and be with us for the next 15 years? God, I hope not. What, you're saying you don't want to see Armin Laschet on TV for 15 years? Like, what would be wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to see him on TV right now. God. You know, I don't think anybody took her seriously necessarily at the beginning. In part, she was elected because Schroeder was so such a doofus, you know? But uh, do you remember who her, you know, opposing candidates were, you know, in the last few elections? We've got Martin Schultz from the last one, but before that or before that? I mean, I think, I think you know, that Christian Lindner... I don't know if I've ever seen a campaign without his face in it. I, you know, I think he's must have been here for a long time. And the FDP at some point had a coalition with the CDU. So, you know, maybe he'll continue to assail us with his speeches for the next 50 years. I don't know. Oh, God, I hope so. That's so enlightening. <laughs> I would wish for Annalena Baerbock to be more visible. But I also think... Other, there are other politicians who deserve a bigger stage. I think Cem Özdemir has mm -hmm. a lot to say. Um, Amina Tatoura. I think there's great politicians that exist in this country uh, who have been somewhat overshadowed by Merkel. But I think at the end of the day, there will never be another Merkel. I don't think you will get anybody to be in power for 16 years in this country again. And not because I think they're going to institute some sort of law, but because there's nobody with her sort of lack of charisma who could convince people. And, and I think that that, that, that that was part of the reason why she got to stay in power. There was never another personality who would go up against her. Yo, diggers. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Massive thank you this week to our guest host, Courtney Tens, for joining us on the show. We hope you all enjoyed the conversation as much as we enjoyed recording it. You may remember Simon and I talked about possible changes last month. Well, look out for more guest hosts as we bring in some of our favourite people to talk about their experiences of Germany. You never know. If they're good, they may well leave with a bottle of Simon's homemade booze. Also, thanks to everyone else for sharing the pod and getting our Hof chat and tenuous grasp on German history into the ears of more and more listeners. If you'd like to support the show and gain yourself a shout out on the podcast, retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag DecadesFromHome all lowercase, on Twitter or Instagram. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home. You can tweet me at 40% German. You can also get us on 40% German at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40% German.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and bis zum nächsten Mal. Tschüss. And not in spoilers, he gets he gets he gets uh, knocked by uh, Joaquin Phoenix. So like that's but that's the opening five minutes of that film. So it's Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin, Joaquin. I, I'm doing, I'm going with what I, I know. Joaquin, I think is. is... Yeah. No, <laughs> so, like, why do you have to make fun of my pronunciation? You don't see me knocking around, laughing at your received pronunciation. Jeez, harsh, <laughs> hurt my feelings. Sorry, that's all right. In September 9 AD, Varus was prepared to leave the summer headquarters.